Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I am Mecca Don here with my co-host V. Mamba mentality for life. Today is February 20th, 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020. <laughs> Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you can be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. On today's show, we will talk to Janae Bolden, the managing editor of the world-famous Bossip, Global Grind, and Hip Hop Wired, about her rise in the industry, cool celebrity stories, advice for young artists, the state of women in hip-hop, and more. We'll also do some news and notes of popular sports, music, and pop culture stories from around the country, from the coronavirus, rest in peace, Pop Smoke, the Boy Scouts, the NCAA, and more. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Remember now that our $5 and up Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays, a night early. These donations will help keep our show going. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. Thanks to all those who have contributed so far. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? next guest is the senior content director of pop culture at i1 digital managing editorial content for the popular brands bossip hip-hop wired and global grind she's also the ceo of the lifestyle brand curl mob and has been an important voice in music and culture for years please welcome janae bold into the show what's up janae how are you how are you doing i'm great thanks for having me guys hashtag curl mob hey Yeah, Danae, your your uh your story again is so fascinating. Uh, just just watching kind of your, I guess you call it rise. You probably wouldn't call it rise. You probably call it a journey. But just watching your journey kind of through media, right, and 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 hip hop and and journalism, and now being a CEO and and being a voice and being a face. Uh, I guess just kind of we wanted to start a little bit with just a little bit of how did you get there? How does someone who grew up where you grew up uh, get to where you've kind of gotten now? Um, I think that it's definitely been a journey for sure. Um, how did I get there? I don't think it's, I don't think my story is that non-traditional. I definitely had always knew I wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew, I did grow up in, in Iowa. I went, I grew, I did junior high and high school in Iowa. I lived in Boston before that in Georgia and Alabama, some other places, more diverse places, obviously. Right. Um, than Iowa. <laughs> but um, from Iowa, I really just wanted to be somewhere um, completely opposite of Iowa. So I went to, I chose NYU as a school that I wanted to attend. Um, they recruited me um, pretty actively. I was, I was a national achievement scholar. So really always um, driven to do well in school. My parents were uh, academics. Um, both professors. My mother is a PhD. My stepdad is a dentist, um, and he was the director of the dental program at the University of Iowa. So, I mean, I always had really high uh, aspirations based on them and their achievements. Right. And, um, but my passions were really different from theirs. Like, I never thought about going into medicine. Um, my mom, she has her PhD, but her, her background is in occupational therapy, mm -hmm. um, and sociology. 
And then my stepdad, as I said, is a dentist. Um, I always was more creative. I always loved to read, loved to write. So I really, when I started at NYU at that time, I identified as a writer, as a poet. Um, I was concerned because I always heard that writers, you know, you've you've always heard the term starving artist. So I didn't want to be a starving artist. So I definitely was like, went into college open-minded about maybe doing something else. Um, I did an internship in public relations, didn't really love it. Um, and then my last year of college, I took a creative writing class and loved it so much. Mm. I really wanted to continue taking writing classes. So instead of, uh, when I graduated, instead of going right out and getting a job, I opted to attend, um, graduate school and, and get a master's in fine arts and creative writing. So I really pretty much always knew I wanted to write. Um, I didn't necessarily take journalism studies. Um, I didn't know that I would write for publications or magazines, but it is interesting knowing that I grew up um, reading like Vibe Magazine, Monthly, Double yeah. XL, The Source, those type of magazines that I ended up writing for later. Uh, I guess did kind of, I mean, maybe all of this, you know, studying of hip hop that I did as a teenager, it paid off. Yeah. Um, so, so I actually had two questions about that as far as, as a follow-up one is that in, in, in this space, right. A lot of times, um, people come out without that formal education background. If you could speak to how you feel like actually going through that, going through college and going to graduate school, how that's helped you. And then the second thing is like growing up in Iowa and in your space, how did you actually fall in love with hip hop and say, this is the field that I want to be, be in initially from a writing standpoint? Um, okay. So, um, so the first question, the education part, I really think is central. Um, I don't necessarily think education is for everybody, but for me, um, NYU really, it gave me a reason to go to New York. And I feel like my education was twofold. I got the education from school and I got the education from living in the city. For sure. Yep. And then bigger than that, the networking that happens at college is people don't understand how important and vital the most important thing. So I would say like, especially for what I do now with Boston um, and some of the other publications I've written for, Sometimes when I have a story that I'm working on, I'm still reaching out to peers of mine from NYU who now work in the entertainment industry that I've known for, you know, since I was 18 years old. And it makes it that much easier to accomplish things when you have that kind of relationship. So I would say college is great for relationships. So if you're someone, especially somebody who isn't necessarily the most outgoing person, the most, you know, um, event attending person or networking person, I think that college is essential because like those people that you attend school with, those are the people you're going to forge relationships with. And later on down the line, when it comes time to build, these are the people that are going to believe in you because they know you best and they understand what you can do. And they, you know, they, they have that experience with you. So quick thing on that real quick, Janae, you know, V and I, we actually met a lot of people don't know this, but I'm going to tell people now we actually met our freshman year of college. Um, we lived on the same floor, the same dorm, 
and we've been oh, wow. best friends ever since then. And so you're, I mean, that's a hundred, that's just a perfect example of oh, what yeah. you're saying. See, yeah. So see, I'm right. But, but yeah. And I did, I knew you went to college together. I didn't realize that you met freshman year, but yeah, those, um, those, those friendships and relationships are like lifelong ones. And, right. um, the second part, the question about like what drew me to hip hop or writing for hip hop, mm-hmm. um, I definitely living in Iowa, there was not a lot of black culture around me. So I heavily relied on hip hop music, hip hop culture um, to kind of get me through and like not feel so isolated and alone. Yeah. And so when it came time, um, when it came time, you know, that I had an opportunity, my first opportunities were to write for hip hop publications. So like, I think one of my first interviews was like um, Ladybug Mecca from um, Diggable Planet. Planet, Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, I know about these groups because this is the music I've been listening to for my whole life. And then I also kind of knew the style to write in already because I was such a big fan of Daniel Smith. I was such a big fan of Dream Hampton. Mm -hmm. Um, There were so many other writers that had really um, caught my attention with their writing about some of my favorite rappers. And so, you know, when I had that chance, I really had a bar that was set really high. And my goal was to like do for other fans of hip hop, what these other writers had done for me. So that's definitely kind of how, how the groundwork and the foundation was laid. And talk to us a little bit about about your move to New York because I I'm it's funny we didn't even meet in New York but we have a very kind of similar story. I'm from Ohio and I went to New York to go to NYU for law school and so oh, wow. yeah so yeah. it's kind of like we're both from the Midwest and and I also went there because of like what you also said it wasn't just about the education that I was going to receive but also about being in the city and learning about the city and growing and meeting people there. Tell us a little bit about that. Was there was it a shock for you when you went to New York? Were you excited? Was it what you expected? No, it wasn't a shock at all. It was a big breath of fresh air. And I think part of me was just kind of like naive and didn't realize like what a big change it was because I was just so happy to see other brown people. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, I think that I moved around a lot um, growing up. Um, We like I said, we lived in. I was born in Alabama. My mom and I moved to Boston when she was pursuing her PhD. When she and my stepdad married, we moved to Georgia and um, eventually they moved back to Boston. So I had already been in like a big city. Um, granted, but it I was, was a Boston. Kid, so, well, Boston's a pretty big city, yeah. you know? And then um, also in Iowa, a lot of people don't realize, but Chicago's only about um, from where I was, I was living in Iowa, which is Iowa City, Iowa. Chicago is a three-hour drive. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Wow. Yeah, and, and in Iowa, there wasn't a lot of, like, black hairstylists. So, like, if I wanted to go get my hair done, I would actually drive to Chicago. Oh, God. That's crazy. You know, it, was, it really was a great opportunity for me to explore more of who I was, be more comfortable in my own skin. Um, I, I actually minored in Africana studies at NYU, so mm-hmm. um, it was you know, I was learning a lot more about black culture, um, the history of black people in U- in the U.S. And um, being in New York where you can just hop on the subway and you get to Harlem and you see the things that you're reading about as far as the Harlem Renaissance. It was like it was just incredible. Like I, I definitely recommend um, living in New York to right. anyone young. I think it's like a great place 
for young people. Um, I don't think it's for everybody, but if no. you're, if you're, yeah, everybody should do a every- bid there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. I say everybody should do a bid there for a couple of years <laughs> yeah. and then go somewhere else. But you know, the thing about New York that's unique, you know, I've lived a lot of places as well is that there are a lot of cities with diversity, right? But there aren't a lot of cities where people interact and are integrated in the way that New York are. You're forced to interact from with people of all different cultures and kind of break down your barriers or you're not going to survive, you know? Yeah. And I definitely think it's like there, there's so many people who don't have that experience, like who don't see more of the world. And like, I think when you live in New York or even LA to an extent, like you get a little piece of the the whole global experience, like meeting people from other cultures. And I think it's something that, that we all need to do more of, you know, it's definitely, um, I guess, um, critical mind, mind expanding. Yeah. Today, one thing that you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier was, was kind of, you know, getting in touch with black culture. And part of it was, you know, your initial exposure to it. A lot of it was through hip hop and probably through movies also. I'm, I'm sure um, when you were growing up in Iowa and then you got to New York and you got to experience it a little bit more. And then now you're in Atlanta and now you work for one of the biggest kind of black publications that's out there. And you're now also not just, you know, learning about it, but you're also now helping to shape it by being a managing editor of boss up. You're helping to actually shape black culture or what people think about black culture, the images that people see, what type of responsibility do you feel like you have there? Because I feel like that's a substantially different role um, than initially what you were doing when you were just kind of, when you were kind of writing and covering the culture. Yeah, the difference between being a writer and editor seems to be vast. Yeah, it's definitely vast. And I think the thing is there, like there's so much that goes into being an editor. Um, I mean, the, the, I'm really trusted with a staff. So like, even when you talk about me shaping the culture, that's not just on me. Like I have a whole team of people who we all kind of come together and brainstorm. And I think it's just my responsibility to like, look at different people's strengths and say like, you're bringing this to the table. Like we want you to do more of this. And um, it's, it's just, I think a natural expansion for me. Like I've always been somebody who I don't like to stay stagnant. I always like to take on new things. And when I feel like I've mastered a skill, I'm like ready to move on into another skills so I think it was just um, a natural progression and the next step for me like I'm super competitive um, always been super competitive and um, so when I when I first started working for Boston you know I was always trying to find breaking news stories exclusives all those kind of things that and those things naturally led to me becoming a leader um, within the company um, but once you get to that leadership position you're no longer, you know, um, your, your duty is no longer just to be the sole person, you know, achieving. You want, you want to see everybody win, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you have, you know, you have to really humble yourself and say, Hey, maybe instead of me being the person to always do these interviews or do these things, like I need to bring along, you know, one of my editors. So it's really like paying close attention to like, who wants more, who wants to do more, who's interested in different things and just being more open to other people's ideas right. and thoughts. And I, th- I think Mecca mentioned the, the responsibility as, as anyone who reads Bossip knows it's a, a gossip based site. Right. And, yeah. Um, and obviously if you take it tongue in cheek, it's supposed to be funny. Uh, 
But sometimes gossip columns and, and gossip sites actually influence people's psychology and make them believe certain things that may or may not be true. Do you ever kind of feel conflicted um, with that transition from from being a hip hop journalist um, to now being the editor of a gossip a gossip based site that still has value, but there there's you know there's a lot more um, attached um, to it. I've had I've had a few moments of conflict, but not really because to be honest with you. There's plenty of stories that were like, I knew something before like TMZ broke it or another outlet broke it, but it was just, I felt like ethically it wasn't the right thing to do. So for the most part, I don't have a lot of like regrets or conflicts when it comes to stuff like that. I will say that like from the very beginning, um, I was hesitant even to apply for the job. Um, I had been, so initially my my writing career started off as a freelance one. So I was um, a contracted employee for a website called SLHH. One of my favorite sites back in the day. Yeah, state of hip hop. (laughs) (laughs) So I was writing there, but I was um, also writing for, uh, like I said, Double XL, The Source Vibes, some of those other outlets. And I was making a pretty good living when the recession hit. And, um, you know, a lot of the rates dropped for the freelance outlets. And then I actually lost um, the, the position. SOHH hat was hacked in 2009. Blazing I hot. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And it was like. Um, I used so to read your a, stories before I knew you. <laughs> yep. It's funny how many people tell me that. And it's, um, I don't know. Like, I always liked, I, w- I always wanted like name recognition. I never necessarily wanted to be like someone whose face people um, knew Um, that's changed a bit since I started doing more TV appearances. But, um, but like I said, I was conflicted because I, so SOHH had an issue with their um, server being hacked by these German hackers and it cost the company a lot of money. They ended up having to do layoffs. I was eventually laid off and I was unemployed for, about six months before I got the job at Bossip. And when I was applying, it was really because I really needed a job because there definitely was the hardcore hip hop journalist in me who was like, this is gossip. Right. Like I was, look, I kind of looked down on it mm-hmm, initially, for sure. but what made it okay for me was one, the leadership, Mar Frazier, who was um, the CEO or the chief creative officer at the time. Um, she had just a great personality. We really clicked from our very first interview and I trusted her. I wanted to learn from her. Um, So that was part of why I took the job. And then the second part was she explained to me, she was like, listen, people have nothing to worry about. If they don't do anything to be put on blast by us, there's no reason for them to fear the website. You know, like we can be a tool for good press, we could be a tool for bad press. Mm-hmm. And that's really, that's kind of the attitude that I carry forward. Now, it, it's not always 100% foolproof because, of course, sometimes there are rumors that are not true. Right. Things have also shifted over the years. A lot of things that used to be okay back in the day, like, for example, people being outed, I now don't agree with at all. I don't think that anyone should be publicly outed by an outlet. I think that that's such a personal decision. When you say outed, you mean in terms of their sexuality? Like you mean? Sex, yeah, okay. like their sexuality. Like I think, I think that that's something that's 
that's really should be private. And have you ever been I, run up on? Has anyone ever come up to you like, yo, why did you guys do this? Or why did you do that? Has that ever happened to you? No, I've never been run up on. Now, <laughs> emailed a few times though. <laughs> right. I've definitely, I've had like, I, I've had someone, a reality star, like put my picture on. I've had my picture put out there a couple times. Like I've had people <laughs> post pictures on Twitter. Um, specifically, like Nicki Minaj's um, barbs have attacked me before. Oh no! I also had another. I'm not even gonna give him the shine of saying his name but I had, <laughs> I had a reality and i don't even want to call him a star because <laughs> a wash rapper who was on a reality show oh um um put, posted my photo like multiple times because he was unhappy with us posting about him um mm. like those type of things have happened and even like when i first met um Tez Bryant, who works with Lil Wayne, among other people, he kind of jokingly made like the little cross, you know, like he crossed his fingers, like, you yes. know, like the Stay cross sign. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. But it's funny because now we're like very cool. Um, you know, whenever we see each other, it's all love. It's a hug. You know, it's just one of those things where like I just really try to be conscious about my energy. So like when I go into rooms and go into spaces and approach people, you know, I always try to like really just give off a good energy. Like one one thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, we hear a lot about, especially in in the in the gossip world and in 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 breaking news media, right? Is the money that's happening behind the scenes, the money people are paying to break stories. I know you and I have talked at length about some of the weird things that go on. Like if a photographer takes a picture of a celebrity and the celebrity posts the picture the photographer can sue the celebrity, even though it's an image of them. If you guys take a picture off, off, off the internet, you can be sued. Could you just kind of explain how that whole process works and how stories are given to you and how the money kind of, kind of works behind the scenes? Um, well, I think the, the, it's two different things that you're talking about. So like, definitely there's a part of it where like people will say like, how much do you have to pay for a post and that kind of thing, which like, some sites do charge you to post things. We don't charge people to post things. Okay. Um, also, yeah, also, um, I mean, there's, there is, there is though, where you could do like what's called native advertising, like so through, go through our sales team and you could purchase like a banner or yeah. something like that. Like that, that is how that works. Now the other side that you're talking about is really to do with licensing, image licensing, yes. and copyright laws. So, there's a lot of different laws depending on where you are, but over the years, as social media has turned towards utilizing paparazzi photos, the laws have gotten much stricter. And that's why you can see an instance where Khloe Kardashian posts a photo of herself on her Instagram, and then the, the, agents, the photo agency that published the photo of her sues her because she hasn't paid for her licensing, right? Yeah. Even though it's her, even though it's picture. her image, that's that's so crazy right. to me. Every time exactly. I hear a story like that, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, I will say with with our outlets that most of the loss, the litigation, I, if not most, if not all, has been over image licensing because when, like a lot of sites, when they start out, they might not have the budget for these licensing ag- agreements. Um, yeah. But then once 
um, they get bigger and they might get away with it for a while, taking the images from other sites mm-hmm. or taking them from like a search platform. Eventually they're going like to get you that. though. Eventually they're going to get you. Eventually they once will you start making you. money, there's a lot of money in it. Yep. And then once they realize, okay, they have the money now to pay this lawsuit, mm-hmm. it's $10,000 per hit. So that means if you use multiple pictures for one post, you can end up pay- having to pay $50,000 wow. because you use five photos yeah. that you didn't license. So it's definitely a very um, tricky thing. And then I would say even for people who are like, oh, I'm just putting this on Instagram. Instagram's not going to protect you. So no. you, there have been sites who have like lost their handle because of using these improper images. So like, for example, um, one of my favorite sites is um, fashion bomb daily, which is a fashion site. And they had their site, they had their Instagram suspended for a while. And it was because of using these unlicensed images. So when I'm talking to my team, I'm very, you know, I'm constantly reinforcing, hey, make sure you're using, we have three agencies we source our photos from, which are Getty, um, Flash News, and Win. Right. And if the image doesn't come from them, then we have to make sure that we have permission. You know, a lot of times a publicist might supply images or a movie studio or a record label. And in all of those instances, you have to do follow-up work and make sure you, you're c- properly crediting the photographer. Or, like I said, it gets very... It can get very tricky. One one thing that uh, it's interesting, too, because the, the landscape of media is, is changing drastically, yeah. right? And, you know, social media and everything else. And even uh, the landscape of music and, and how music interacts with media. And one thing that I, we wanted to ask you about is kind of like your views on kind of the state of hip-hop and some of these new and, and, and young artists, because, you know, you have people like, you know, like Tory Lane saying, you know, hip hop is in a horrible place and Pete Rock saying something similar. And then you have Billie Eilish who came out and said yesterday or two days ago, there's a lot of lying going on in, in rap and whatever. Um, but then you have other people coming out and saying, no, hip hop is actually in the best place that it's ever been in. There's so much diversity, you know, the the kind of merger between not the merger, but kind of the intersection between the, the youth and the older generation. What are your feelings right now on kind of the state of hip hop? Um, I, I don't know. I'm really torn because there's a lot of stuff that I do really like. And there's a lot of people that I think are doing different things. Um, and I, one thing that I do like about right now is it seems like the nineties samples are really big. Mm-hmm. big. Um, so I would say that's like something that I like, but I, I feel like, there does need to be more balance. And I also think there needs to be more creativity. Um, and um, I mean, it's something we talk about a lot. I have a podcast um, that I'm on called the A Room Show. And we do talk about that a lot. And we also talk about though, like how, how pop music, certain artists get put into a pop music category, but they really are, it's really urban music at the core. Like even, if you're talking about like Post Malone or somebody like that, mm-hmm. who has a lot of works with black producers and black songwriters and then makes music that gets put into this pop category. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, that's really interesting to me. I think we still have a long way to go um, in terms of like making sure that the people who deserve to get the credit and the acclaim are getting it. Um, but I mean, I still love, 
hip hop. I mean, I've been, I've, it's like one of it's my hard first to fall loves. out of love. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, and I still listen. I mean, the thing about it is like, whatever is good is going to endure. So yeah. like there, I'm still listening to some of the same music that I was listening to when I was 14. Oh years yeah, old. for sure. For and sure. that's not going to change. And that's why so you I see mean, a lot of these like old, oldie stations and, you know, 90 stations like around the country are like popping up every every day it seems like because there's still a huge market for that music and i like to go back and go back and listen because i felt like back in previous generations there people concentrated on making albums and so i can listen to complete complete work and i think the best artists now still think of music that way right they think of making an album versus I'm just trying to put out a hot and, single. And speaking of that too, Janae, that's one of the other questions I wanted to ask as I was talking about kind of the intersection of, you know, or like the changing nature of music and social media. What advice would you give an artist, a young artist that was trying to make it today? And, you know, obviously if they had a certain level of talent, what, what would be some of the things that you feel like they would need to focus on? Cause it seems like when we were coming up, that answer would probably be different. Yeah, for sure. It's a lot different than what it would have been back in the day. I mean, I think that the great thing about now is like there's so many options and so many venues. Like I think back in the day, it was like there was like one road and it was basically like find a record label who can distribute your music. And now it's like there is so many other options for distribution. Um, I think that streaming has opened up you know, the door for like anyone to just become an overnight success. But I think for a, a new artist, the biggest things are just the quality. Like you want to m- try to get your music to the best quality that you can. Mm-hmm. So um, just, con- I would say continue to, to persevere until, um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, until you, um, you really perfect, you know, you're like, and that's really with anything. So if you want to be a writer, if you want to be a photographer, just continue to do your craft, like do your craft every day, study the great, um, be open to collaboration, just keeping an open mind period. I had early on in my career, I had a a mentor of mine tell me that like, not to limit myself in terms of what kind of writing I wanted to do. You know, she was like, you're, you're a writer. You're not just this kind of writer or that kind of writer. Like you, you are a writer. And, and I've tried to honor that. And I think that that's the same that goes for musicians too. You know, like, just not to limit yourself or think you can only do one thing or another thing, just be open to trying different things. And I would say like never to copy or emulate someone else, like definitely create your own, trust your own voice. And I think, um, I think that that's something we all can learn from. Like a a lot of us don't just don't trust our own voices. Right. And then I would also just say, just really um, educate yourself um, about the business, the business side. Yes, for sure. And if you're not, gonna do that make sure that you really research and find someone like don't just trust that your parents or your family member or your homeboy is gonna be a good manager or whatever like you need to get real legal advice and like make sure that your your lawyer is not also representing the people (laughs) who are trying to i've seen that many times it's unbelievable how common that is you can't like you can't just say oh i trust this person because and, I, and we see it, too, in a lot of small markets, like, you know, a lot of smaller markets where you have um, label executives who might, you know, they might actually, you know, be street people who, you know, what I'm saying like right. street people who have created labels. And now they're like, OK, we have this artist and like the artist feels they trust them because mm-hmm. they've given they've given them clout in their city. 
Right. You know, they just feel like, oh, this person has already taken me so far. Why would they take advantage of me? But like, you have to understand how publishing works. Like, um, how capitalism, you know, exactly. (laughs) And, And I, I just, I just really urge everyone, like, it doesn't even matter. Like, I can't say it enough. It doesn't even matter if it's your mom and dad. Yeah. Like, make make sure that you are protecting yourself and your business. And it's hard. It's Even myself as a creative, it's hard sometimes. Um, because when you're a creative, you want to focus on the fun part for you, which is like, you know, it, and, which is also right. a lot of work. But like, but like the part that creatives are great at is the creative part. Yeah. That's what you they're, that's what they're good at. Right. You know, it's a very yeah, rare you, case where you have the Jay-Z who's good at everything, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, that seems to be the case. It's like the business side of the music. If you're actually trying to make money is very, very complicated. Um, and I think we didn't realize it, but like Mecca having, being a lawyer and me having an MBA actually probably helped us, um, even more so in the town when it came to the money, right. And negotiating deals. If you don't understand that having someone you trust that understands that, is critical for artists because your, your job is to be a creative primarily. Right. Yeah. And so one of the things too, also, you know, now there's been like a big rise. Well, I don't want to say a big rise, but I think there are a lot of female hip hop artists that are popping. I mean like popping, popping like Cardi B, like Meg Thee Stallion, Nicki Minaj, obviously. And then you got, you know, Tierra Whack and Rhapsody and city girls. And I just wanted to get kind of your thoughts on the state of female hip hop uh, whether you think it's in a good place, whether you, you know, what, what are your thoughts on it generally? Um, I think, I still think that there's a lot more room for different kinds of female artists. Yeah, um, I agree. I, because I feel like the whole hot girl summer thing that happened, like, I feel like as far as the charts are concerned, that's so heavily the focus is like the Megan the Stallions and the city girls, and, right. you know, the, and I think that um, you you always hear people throw out Rhapsody, who like obviously Rhapsody is an amazing artist. I wouldn't take anything away from her, but I think she's so far on the other end yeah. of the spectrum. Yeah. And I think I think there's so much room in between. And like, mm. but I do, but I do love that there's multiple artists. Like I love Rico Nasty, and I mm. love Doja, Doja Cat is one of my favorite artists right Tierra now. Tierra Wax seems to be. I love, I love that balance. Have she's that balance. So dope. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And she's so creative. Like, and mm. I love the fact that it's like with her work, she's not just thinking about um, the music. It also translates with her videos and even her clothing and how she dresses. Right. Um, she takes so us yeah, back to I Missy mean, Elliott. Yeah, she does in a lot of ways, but she, at the same time, she's still her own. Yeah, she's her entity. own entity. Yeah. It's like very unique. It's not. It's not. Um, and I feel like because I feel like we have seen people too who have like, oh, this person. You know, they go the, they'll take the blueprint and like copy it, right to the to the whole extent of. And I just think it's it's like really clear who like when you look at the music labels and you see people getting pushed and like not to take anything away from like Saweetie, for example, I think right. she's a really sweet girl and I think she's very beautiful and I think the, some of the music is great, but I think that it's a different kind of music mm-hmm. that um, I think that there's room, like I said, for other types I, of music. Like I, 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 I feel like a lot of the culture is being driven because of social media. 
a lot of it's being driven by image too, right? They're successful artists who yeah. I'm not going to say any names, but aren't really that good of musicians. <laughs> right. But because they know how to brand themselves on social media and and create attention for themselves, they are embraced by a younger audience, which is different. Like in our era, if you were whack, you wouldn't make it. Didn't matter what you look like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Especially, and it's funny, I even mean, in R&B you, too. You're saying that, but you're saying that, but Vanilla Ice was the thing. That's you, true. You don't remember that? He had one, that's he yeah. Had, that song was good though. It was a good song at the time, right? Like people loved it. <laughs> he that's just, true. I mean, he it, didn't have staying power. It just matters now. I guess what, I guess the the better point is that it just, a lot of other things also matter. You can get popping because you're a, a sneakerhead nowadays. You know what I mean? And, and, um, you can get views that way, or you could do the, you know, six nine route, um, and just in, and get views that way. But one other one other question we wanted to ask you too before we get you out of here. First of all, thank you for this interview. This has been great. Um, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about people that you've met, right? And you know, I'm sure you've you get that question a lot. Angela Yee is your best friend. Um, I'm sure you know people ask you questions about her a lot. But more specifically, we just wanted to know, um, you know, top five. We like to get top five, but it doesn't have to be top five. Just some interesting people that you've met or people that you want to meet that you feel like are, have been inspirational in this industry. Because we hear a lot of negative stuff. Let's let's talk about some positive stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of great interactions. Like, I would say top five. So, Rihanna. I met Rihanna um, before I worked for Bossip. I met her at a birthday party. I think it was my 29th birthday. So we all agreed to go out for drinks this particular night. We're out. We get there. We walk into the space and, and Ty Ty's in there mm. in a different booth. Right. And this place is just known for having great music. Um, shout out to DJ Center. He's a, a good friend of mine who's the DJ there. Like he's just known for creating these great vibes. So like that's the one thing about New York. Like you'll always have these little lounges where yeah. like there's a certain DJ who comes and people come just to hear and like you you could have any type of celebrities in there. Oh yeah. So That's so literally we here. get there. Yeah. And um Tai Tai tells Angela, um, Rihanna's coming. And we're like, oh shit, Rihanna is coming. <laughs> Rihanna so Rihanna and it wasn't just Rihanna. So Rihanna came with Katy Perry. Oh my god. Gym wow. class heroes. Oh wow. wow. And everybody was just like, we just vibed out, had a great time. Um, just listening to music. I mean, Rihanna wasn't really mixing with us a whole lot. But when I when I went to go to use the bathroom, she was down there with her best friend, Melissa. And um, I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. You just made this like the best birthday of my life. And she was like, happy birthday, bitch. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like Rihanna. <laughs> yeah, Seems like and cool. we took a picture. So like that was a, that was a really good reaction. I mean, um interaction one of my favorites for sure yeah um another big one would be um recently when i watched when i saw queen and slim and i did the press junket for it meeting um so i went to go do my interviews through the studio and daniel kaluuya Mm. remembered me from when I, I had met him at an airport um, before Get Out even came out. I went to an advanced screening of Get Out. So I recognized him at the airport. No one else knew who he was at this time. Mm. And um, no one was bothering him or anything. And I just went over and I was like, you did such a good job in this movie. 
mind you, he remembered me. So like wow. year, two, two years later, I'm interviewing him and he's like, I know you, we met before. Like that was a great feeling. And he was like such a great positive guy, but like not just him, Jody Turner Smith, who played queen and queen and slim. Just when I say like one of the most amazing energies I've ever been around, like just a beautiful woman, like everything about her, her skin is like just glows and she's just like such a sweet person, personality. Got two left. Um, okay. So Barry Jenkins would also top my list. Um, Barry Jenkins, who um, directed Moonlight and also If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, I interviewed him um, last year and he just was, he's so smart. I would say that the last one I would say is Lynn Whitfield, the actress. Mm -hmm. So we actually, after Essence Fest, ended up sitting next to each other on a flight. And she was just so sweet. She loved, she was really into my hair. She just kept asking me who did my hair, who cut it, who colored it. Like she wanted (laughs) everything. And then, she complimented my ear. She was just like, you are just a class act. And I love, you just have such good taste. This, that, the other, we exchanged phone numbers. And I ended up when the new season of Greenleaf um, started, I ended up interviewing her and the other um, Joy, um, Joy Winans and Deborah Joy Winans and um, Merle Dandridge and the, um, the young lady that who plays um, their, her Merle Dandridge's daughter on Greenleaf. So it was like the four, women of Greenleaf and lit. So it was like, I got to see her again and we were so excited to see each other and they were, they all were an amazing interview, but that, I think that interaction was, I mean, that interview was enhanced because I already was familiar with Lynn. So like I came in kind of feeling really comfortable with them and it's something really special that can happen in the interview where like the energy exchange, like when it's, when it's equal, it's such a good thing. Like when you don't feel like you're pulling things out of people and right. you also like, um, and I there, think that you, there has to be like an in, intuitive side, um, to an extent. Well, I think they're also like, there's celebrities that, that realize that they're celebrities, but they also realize they're human beings first. Right. And I think yeah. that's the thing that a lot of times you're not sure if you're going to get when you meet somebody at the end of the day, you know, they, they appreciate what they've done and they're proud of what they've done and the moves that they've made, but they also understand that they're human beings at the end of the day, you know, and that's what I wish every celebrity was like, but a lot of them, you know, not a lot of them, but some of them aren't like that. So it is refreshing yeah. when you meet, when you yeah. actually meet someone like it's that. It's a real interaction yeah. that, that you would have and, with any other person. Right. Right. And I need, I need a bonus one too, because I can't leave Beyonce out. So I didn't, I didn't oh, wow. really have a, I didn't have like a long um, interaction with Beyonce, but like, I was at Made in America um, the year that Solange um, was one of the headliners. And um, I had access to the, I had like the Duce VIP access or whatever. That's how I met Beyonce too. Yeah. When, (laughs) when she came into that space, so you met her too. Yeah. So then you probably in Houston in Houston for a Duce event for this. this. Yeah. (laughs) When she comes into that space, she literally walks around and greets everyone. Yeah. yeah. And it was such a beautiful thing to see someone at that stature who's not like hiding, you know, like granted, like everyone was very respectful. No one was bothering her, you know, but it was just like so nice for her to extend that gesture because 
it meant a lot to me. I mean, I, w- I was a little intimidated. I'm not going to lie to you. It might have been the only time where, like, I've met someone and I couldn't fully, like, engage. Like, I couldn't even really look up at her. Yeah. Was- <laughs> right. Right. She's like, hi, how are you? And I'm, like, looking at the floor. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, this right. woman is just so radiant. But, um, but yeah, so that's my bonus one. And then as far as the negative ones, I, of course, I've, I've had some really um, negative experiences, too, but you know, I would never name those people. Right. I like try, I, you, like I'm all about energy and like, I don't want to like, um, put any energy into those interactions. So yeah. when I have a bad experience like that, it like, I'm big on that. Like if you, I think I email you guys from my Gmail. So, you know, my signature is like that Maya Angelou quote, which is like, people will forget what you did, what you said, but they'll never forget about how you made them feel like. And so like, I, I never want to make anyone feel speaking of like, that. I met Akeem Olajuwon when I was 11. I didn't meet him, actually. I was in the airport in Houston, okay? And we were walking. I was a huge fan. And he's Nigerian. We were, he's Nigerian, and I'm Nigerian. And I was trying to get his attention, and he would not turn to us. So we're, like, following him through the airport. And we're like, Akeem, please. He's a big there. My parents were there, like, trying to get his attention. He was literally just walking like the bad bitch at the club, ignoring us like, like we didn't even exist. And we're trying and trying and trying, and eventually he just walks through the security won't even turn, won't take a picture, won't do anything. And I'll never forget it. I was just, I loved him as a player, but I just felt like I, I could never get over it. And it's so crazy because, you know, I don't know what he was going through. He might've been having a bad day. Someone may have died. Who knows? But that situation stuck with me forever. And he now hates, every time I look at him, even I Even when can't. we're talking basketball and I'm like, Akeem deserves more credit than he gets. He's like, fuck Akeem. <laughs> I just can't. So... That's that's so you're so right with that. Like it's such a big burden to be a celebrity and have to deal with all these people anytime you're in public and again, no matter what you're going through. But I do think that there's some people who have managed to handle it with grace. Like you said, even someone as big as Beyonce can go and, you know, greet everybody in the room and she knows how important that moment is um for everybody else. Last thing I want to ask you before we get you out of here is I want you to talk a little bit about Curl Mob. You're the CEO of a lifestyle brand called Curl Mob. I want to give you a chance to plug that a little bit and yeah. uh, give our, our, our listeners a little bit uh, uh, idea of what that is about. Okay, so Curl Mob. Um, <clears throat> so I I created my LLC in 2017. Um, it came out of something I would always hashtag on social media. So like. And I, obviously, you guys have mentioned Angela Yee's my best friend. A few of my other friends are also, like, curly, natural girls. So, like, sometimes when we have a group photo, I would hashtag it, curl, curl mob. Right. Um, but um, when I, as I started to do more TV and my profile got a little bit bigger, I was like, I want to have a business that really stands for something that I believe in that is, you know, it was something that was close to my heart. And I'm not going to lie to you. I also was concerned because I already had this hashtag and I saw other people start using it. And I was like, I got to use, I got to do something with this before somebody steals it or tries to steal it. So, um, you know, initially it was also like when I wanted to wear clothing, like there was that point in time where it was streetwear, there was like all those t-shirts that would have like naked white women <laughs> yeah right but i was like where is the t-shirt with the beautiful black girl with the fro or you know the curly hair so i just was like it would be great to have like a line that i could wear that would express 
um, pride in my hair and natural hair. And I also wanted something that was more inclusive because I feel like with the natural hair movement, there's a lot of like um, division, you know, people saying like, oh, you're not natural if you wear a weave or you're not natural if you use whatever product, if you color your hair, whatever it may be. Right. And I just feel like in promoting, I want I want to encourage people to like embrace textured hair without it being becoming like a bunch of rules that go with it. And I just want people to feel like, okay, it's not for everybody. It's a lot of work. So like, say you want to be curly and that means you're going to wear a wig. You can be down with curl mob. You know what I mean? Right. If you wear, if you have locks, just because your hair isn't technically curly, that's still a natural style. And I love that. And I embrace that. So yes, you're part of my community, but it's just the, the name itself is like the mob part is it being a group of people. I've always said that, like, if you ever, um, just as a woman, like, I think one of the great powers of women is like, obviously physical beauty. But like, if you've ever found like when you go out by yourself, the attention that you get might be to whatever degree. But if you go out with a whole group of beautiful women, you like the attention is like even like greater. tenfold. So like, yeah, yes. Like even if you see a photograph, if you see a photograph and it's one beautiful woman, like it's a nice photograph. But if you have a photo of 10 beautiful women, it's like, wow, that's like really an incredible picture. So it's just kind of like to, to have women appreciate each other, uplift each other. And I, I keep saying women, but I really mean people because, you know, I want to be inclusive and I have a lot of male friends who are like, I'm down with Curl Mob too. I want right. to be the, the male ambassador for Curl Mob. But I think just in general, like I, I really um looking for people to understand like this year, the year we don't have, we're not living in that era anymore where the European standard of beauty is the only standard of beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're now at a space where we can be different we can appreciate each other's differences and we can see the beauty in those differences. But so Janae, that's, is- that's dope. I'm, I'm not like, you know, just saying that because I'm your friend, you know, we're, we, we think it's dope. We, we thought it was dope right when we first saw it. And how can people support if they want to support? Do you have an online, online store um, that people can <laughs> go to? Do. Okay. Yeah. The store. So the store is chromobofficial.com. If you go, the Instagram is Chromob Official on Instagram. So you can get to the store from Instagram. You can get through it if you just um, type in the URL. I am going to do um, a new, I'm probably going to re, um, re-up the store pretty soon. I've been working with a designer. So we're going to do um, more like direct um, print on demand because it's just been a lot having all the inventory all over my house. Right. Um, and I'm still working on expanding. So it started with t-shirts and hoodies. I want to do jewelry, like chains that have the pendant, which I wear all the time. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely how to support. Um, also, like if you have natural hair and you want to be featured on the Instagram account, just hashtag um, CurlMob or tag us at official, And, um, you know, I might post. I've been super busy, so I haven't been putting as much energy into it as I right. as I should. But I'm continuing to put it put more energy into it because ideally, 
that is my baby and that is my business. And it's great to be a leader at a big company, but it's even greater to have a successful business of your own. So 100%. I understand that. Yeah, I understand that. And I, I actually have um, some things I'm working on in terms of media with Chromop. So um, just stay tuned because I'm working on trying to get a show greenlit. So, awesome. Okay. Well, like like she said, you can follow Chromop at Chromop Official on Instagram. You can also Follow Janae at Janae Bolden on Instagram and at Janae TMB on Twitter. Janae, this has been awesome. Very, very thorough interview. Uh, much better than I expected, even though I expected great things. Uh, we covered a lot of Thanks. stuff. And I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have to do it again. Uh, you're in L.A. right now, right? I'm in L.A., yes. Okay, so enjoy. And uh, we will definitely talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us on the Pilot Boys podcast. Take care, Janae. Oh, thanks for having me. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. And we have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast, episode 15. Time for some news and notes, V. Let's get to it. First of all, some start with some sad news. Um, R.I.P. to Pop Smoke, Brooklyn rapper who was essentially ambushed um, in a house in L.A. was shot and killed this week. Just it's just sad to hear these stories. It seems like over and over again. Um, he was a very promising rapper. A lot of people believed in him. Um, it's just it's just a sad sad. It's too thing. much too much violence going on in in hip hop right now. Yeah, and in America, you yeah. know so. You know, RIP to him. Um, moving on to some other news. Boy Scouts of America. They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy amidst several abuse lawsuits, sexual abuse lawsuits from across the country. The membership has also declined. Apparently, they're using Chapter 11 to create a victim compensation fund that is expected to pass $1 billion. This is sad to me because I was a Cub Scout growing up. and so was uh, I. Yeah. And it's just, you know, what are your thoughts on that when you hear that, when you hear that type? It's just, it's always unfortunate when you see an organization that's built to do good. Mm -hmm. And especially knowing the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts, the goal is to develop good men, right? right. For adulthood, um, to see something like this happen, potentially destroy all the good that the Boy Scouts have done over decades and decades um, is sad. But it's also sad that this is happening um, in the Boy Scouts of America, and they do need to fix the problem. It's just sad yeah. that the organization itself is at risk. Yeah, and I think that I don't see how it's really going to survive. I mean, those maybe survive in a little way, but I don't see how it's going to survive in a meaningful way. Once you lose trust, I think, and especially in an organization like that, and especially when you're dealing with kids, right? Yep. Um, you know, I have a son, and and I just can't even imagine putting them in there. You know, as as good as what I think they're in, they're intended to be. I just can't. I just can't imagine doing it. And I'm sure a lot of parents think the same way. Yeah, so. it seems like this is a, another troubling issue in America right now. Is is putting adults around children, and mm. no one wants to fear that adults are supposed to be adults, and yeah. children are supposed to be children. Right? It's crazy. So, some more sad news. Sorry that we're starting news and notes off some more sad news, but um, we meant to mention this a couple of weeks ago, but it's very important that we touch on it now. Uh, Layla Jana. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. It's a very a social entrepreneur who created tons and tons of jobs for a lot of people, and she passed away suddenly. I think she was only 37 years old. Tell us a little bit about that, V. 
Well, entrepreneurship is um, is interesting. We all think about making money when we think of entrepreneurship. What she did was using entrepreneurship in business as a way to create social change throughout the world, mm-hmm. um, especially in impoverished nations, training people to have skills um, that are in demand in the in the mainstream world and create jobs um, while also helping develop businesses and make money. It's just an amazing story. She's an amazing person. Um, gone, gone way too soon. Yeah, and you know, one of those things, and we've talked about this before, we talked about this when we were growing up, is, you know, what is the purpose of life? And at the end of the day, I think, you know, we kind of settled on that, you know, leaving an impact, leaving a legacy, you know, leaving a blueprint maybe for of things that we've learned for people who come behind us. That's essentially what she definitely did. I mean, she impacted hundreds of thousands of people. So obviously she's gone too soon, but it's just like we were talking about with the Nipsey Hussle thing and even the Kobe Bryant thing, people who've died uh, much younger than we would expect, but who had tremendous amount of impact. So at least their life was, you know, for sure meaningful. So rest in peace to her. Um, Moving on to some more news. Um, Let's talk to coronavirus. You know, we talked about it before on the show. And the very first time we talked about it, I don't want to say we were making fun of it, but, you know, we definitely weren't giving it probably the the seriousness that we should have. And part of it was because, you know, it seems like there was information about it that was being hidden and we were being lied to. Um, And, you know, the seriousness of, of this virus wasn't really being told, but the impact, you know, obviously, you know, the most powerful and important impact is the impact it's having on lives. People are dying and people are getting sick, but now we're also seeing the business impact, you know, their stocks are being lower as a result. So just this week, for example, um, Fossil, Nike, Apple, Adidas, Skechers, all of them have seen hits as a result of this because they do a lot of manufacturing in China. Uh, there's a Chinese restaurant in London's Chinatown that says business is down by at least 70% as a result because people fear being around anything or anyone Chinese. What are your thoughts about it um, as, in a broader sense? There are two things here. One, I think whenever something like this hits, um, I think it's important for people to avoid hysteria and panic because Mm -hmm. I don't think hysteria and panic ever solves any issues. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that I have with mainstream media right now is that they are seemingly trying to encourage people to panic fanning the flames and fanning the flames Mm -hmm. of this issue versus thinking about how do we solve this? A lot of the stories I hear, they're just talking about the tragedy. They're not even saying exactly what the virus is, Mm -hmm. what it does, what its effects are. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's one side of it. And the other side of it is that all issues like this health scare should be taken seriously mm-hmm. and responded to well. Um, you're hearing even people at the highest levels saying things, marginalizing its impact, like mm-hmm. when the weather changes, it's going to go away. Right. Things <laughs> like that can't yeah. can't be said and mm-hmm. are irresponsible. Yeah. And the second thing about this is that when a virus hits and it started in China, is you see some of the damaging underlying racial tension and stereotypes Mm -hmm. that people have coming up again, not going to Chinese restaurants, not interacting with Chinese people. And not just Chinese, all Asians, Koreans, Vietnamese, they're all dealing with it as if, you know. And if anything, if you look at it, if they are the people that are dealing with it the most, those are the people we should have the most sympathy for, Mm -hmm. not and and, And and try to help them. But I think that touches on one of the things that you just said, which is the responsibility kind of of the media, right? Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the reality is, 
you know, in people's day to day lives, we don't have time, or at least we convince ourselves that we don't have time to go sift through and filter out every single issue and do all the research till we know everything perfectly, right? So a lot of times we rely on our news organizations yep. or outlets to kind of do that for us. And they're not doing a good job of it. I so know. like you said, they're creating a lot of hysteria. And for a, a, an ignorant person, so to speak, who's not necessarily willing to learn, they probably are just going to avoid anything that looks like this because that's just yeah. like, I don't know and I'm not going to take a chance. Um, but again, you know, I blame that obviously on ignorance, but I also blame it on kind of our media and how they cover stories. But this thing is, doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon. And like I said, once business is affected, right, you know, like uh, like I mentioned, Nike, Apple, I mean, some, these these people dropped a couple percentage points, yeah. some of these businesses, um, and not to mention um, just the production, so many, and that's the other thing, the underbelly of American capitalism that a lot of people don't talk about. A lot of these companies have production over in China, yeah. you know, yeah. um, which is kind of an interesting thing considering how people are reacting to this. So we'll see. We'll see how this thing ends up. Uh, speaking of kind of huge issues that affect the world, global warming, crazy weather. Um, Jeff Bezos, I think, committed $10 billion to fight climate change. There's some people, I don't know if they're haters or not, who are saying, nah, he's just doing that, creating some type of fund that's going to eventually help him become richer. What are your thoughts on on that? First of all, this is a real issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the fundamental problems that I'm hearing again in media is either you quote unquote believe in climate change or you don't believe in climate change. And there's like a line in the sand being drawn and, and people who are on the, the this isn't an issue side sound very ignorant mm -hmm. and unwilling to educate themselves on the issue. Mm -hmm. um, and of course there are probably some extremists on the other side who are saying like crazy things as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's a polarizing issue like many issues um, but again, it is real. I think we are feeling the effects. If you study this, you know what's happening in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. and, and if you speak to climate change experts, I'm not a climate change expert. Mm -hmm. You're not, but talk to someone who is, mm -hmm. um, to understand. And also it's, it's what just, is the resistance? I'm not getting, what is the resistance that people have to kind of acknowledge this as a real issue? What, what is it? What's the, re the resistance based on? I quite frankly don't understand. Maybe it's the fear mm -hmm. of what the potential consequences are because right. it is going to eventually cause it's 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 like a lot of things. There pollution. must be some money involved we, somewhere too because yes. when you talk about like energy and how, how you're going to harness energy and stuff like that and what that there, there are a lot of businesses that. that are impacted mm -hmm. um, by making changes. It's going to be a lot more expensive for businesses in certain industries to do business. Um, if they've got to worry about all these regulations, we dealt yeah. with it with pollution for years, right. um, where regulations came in slowly, but surely we should um, bring an expert on that. To we talk about this. We definitely this should. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing that with the Jeff Bezos thing, I think there's a lot of negativity around what people do, mm -hmm. but the fact that he's even taking an initiative, whether it's perfect or not and committing $10 billion to it. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are real. Mm -hmm. It's all about what we do with that money right. to make a change because yeah. he's taking a step. He doesn't have all the answers. He runs Amazon. He's not a climate change expert, but right. he, he sees this as a problem and instead of sitting on his ass, he's trying to do something. Yeah, and I respect it. You know, It's just like you know, somebody that people don't like, say, you know, I don't know, some celebrity that people don't like that donates $10 million to cancer society and you're like well he's an asshole like well he donated 10 million dollars so let's take that 10 million and make good use of yes. it yes um speaking of big business mcdonald's monopoly scam 
HBO has a documentary series coming on it now. What do you know about it? It's actually interesting to me because I worked at McDonald's when I was growing up, and I remember the Monopoly games, and I remember how the excitement and hysteria would create around the restaurant when we when it was during those times. So I mean, we all loved the Monopoly game, right? Yeah. We were all trying to collect all the pieces and right. stuff like that. I didn't even know about the scam. What is the scam? Until I w- watched the documentary, right? So basically, it was essentially a, 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 I wouldn't say an organized crime scheme, mm-hmm. but a scheme run by the, oftentimes in these oh, these contests and stuff, they're not run by the business itself. They hire a marketing company. In this case, a company called Simon Marketing was hired um, to run the Monopoly game for Monopoly. So mm-hmm. they executed it. Right. So the head of security at Simon Marketing um, basically conspired and created a way to take the big winning pieces, the million dollar pieces, and uh, distribute them all to people that he knew. Mm-hmm. So they wow. thought it was essentially a harmless crime, and, and it gets crazy. They bring in the mafia. The mafia obviously gets involved. Um, and it's one of the crazier stories that I've heard. Yeah. Um, it's so crazy because it just see, man... <sighs> Is anything it feels real? Like, yeah, right? Is anything <laughs> real? And it just, again, but it shows you that once money is involved, man, especially a lot of money, you better believe there's somebody, whether it gets corrupted or not, there is somebody trying to corrupt it 100%. It's just, that's just the way of the world. It's sad to see that with something as, you know, I don't know. Capitalism, money is, money is the root of everything. I don't yeah. like to say the root of all evil because right. it oftentimes isn't, but- it's, Once there's money involved, you know. And and what what are you doing here, right? You're encouraging people to have a millionaire mindset, yeah. a lottery mindset. So and and it's tough. I I people ask me like what if one of the things that's happening here is what they would do is they would pick the winner and they would go and approach them and tell them essentially like split the money mm-hmm. with or, us. Or else. And so there's scams within the scam right. happening, right? right. Because these that million dollars is taxed. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone taking half of it from you off top, and then those people are paying taxes, they were saying, "Well, we weren't making any money," and it puts people in a unique dilemma because they're basically telling them this is victimless, right? right? right. Like this is how this this, this works. How it works right. Work, yeah. The winners are picked, and yeah. so all of a sudden they're criminals just trying to trying to trying to build a better life for themselves. It's crazy. And the documentary is on HBO. Yes. Okay. So people should must de- watch definitely, TV. Definitely check that out. Uh, one other in- interesting thing that's happened this week, um, Los Angeles County DA moved to dismiss 66,000 marijuana-related convictions, some of them over 50 years old. Uh, and I guess the reasoning is obvious, right? It's like marijuana, recreational marijuana is now legal in the state of California, and you have tons of people who have been locked up for marijuana convictions over the last many decades. So now it's time to let them all go. Yeah, this is a very, very, very deep issue, mm-hmm. right? When you really look at it from a, a criminal justice standpoint, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the number of people who have been incarcerated for many years for minor marijuana violations. Mm-hmm. And I think California, for all the things that they do wrong, this is definitely a step in the right direction, which mm-hmm. is, okay, we've legalized it. Now we need to address the impact that it created, mm-hmm. which isn't an easy thing to tackle, but the impact that it created um, through its history of being legal, mm-hmm. those it's not right to incarcerate people now that we're making money off of it 
that are in prison. So that's for the something. so that's the that's the kind of crux of of the conversation to me is. So I, how do you deal with issues? First of all, I agree with what they're doing, mm-hmm. but there is a question, legitimate question: How do you deal with something that was once illegal, right? Whether or not you agree that it should have been illegal or not, it was, and you theoretically you knew that it was, mm-hmm. and then now it's not. And you're saying, okay, well, I should be let go then because it's not illegal. But it's like, no, but you still broke the law back then. So just because the law changes, does that mean that you should not be free? Here, and that's where I think some contrarians will, will disagree. But here's my counter to that. First of all, the illegality of it in general was always bogus. Yeah. We always knew that it was bogus. You could right? sell cigarettes. They could sell cigarettes legally. Yeah, and alcohol, alcohol legally. It was Guns all, legally. It was, it was always bogus. Yeah. And then again, you also talk about kind of you know, the impact that it had on specific communities, right? People who, you know, were trying to find a way to actually make, to make thrive a living. and make a living in this in this world who didn't have a lot of different opportunity. A lot of them were the ones who are partaking. And then now, I think the point that you made is that now it's not just only that it's legal, but now it's like, this is big business yeah. and billion the billionaires are being made off of this and you're seeing commercials and people are advertising and walking down the street, skipping and smiling. Have you, and been, to, and have you been to California since it's been legal? I haven't, no. The branding and marketing that these, these marijuana dispensaries are doing. It's, a, it's, it so is. that's the next step to me is, and again, I agree with you that this is a hard thing to figure out. And this is something that's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of kind of power and, and, and thought, but how do we now not just, get those people out of jail but how do we now allow them to actually be part of the 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 enterprise yeah to actually start to make money that's that's exactly exactly the where we need to go with this because people don't understand generally how many people have supported their families by being the ten dollar weed salesman for their community Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. now that it's going from a black market to a legal market those people need to be brought along with it to have the same opportunity because again, they weren't doing it for any reason except to provide for their families. And, and that needs to be thought about as we process. hundred percent. And but, but the thing that I fear and the thing that it seems like is happening is that a lot of the money is going to get concentrated in the top 1% big business. You know, it's just going to become like any other that's social. Why, that's why it enterprise. was legalized. Yeah. It was because a small amount number of people, saw the opportunity here because if you look at all the drug statistics and the size of the marijuana market in the United States, it's, it's it's profitable now for them to make it legal. Yes, exactly. And that's why they're doing it. They're not doing it. The government can tax it and it's just, it's just so much money. It's just an abundance of money, which is another reason that people say that, you know, that it probably got, is getting legalized is because there's a lot of money they're losing in the underground by not having it legal and taxing it. Because it's also, you know, it's, as economies develop, they're always looking for new industries, right? Manufacturing is declining. Things are declining. It's like when an opportunity presents itself and they're struggling at their end to find a new multi-billion dollar venture, yeah. that's when they decide to move mountains and make change. It's right. not about it was long wrong that this was illegal in the first place. Yeah, and there's, there's, a, um, there's a documentary. I can't remember what the name of it. It's on Netflix. It's, um, it's about food. I can't remember the name of it. But they basically talk about the food industries and what we've been fed by the food industries in terms of not in terms of meat, like in terms of milk, the value yeah. of milk, uh, how much money goes into the lobbying 
behind that, how much money goes into the marketing and how we were sold a lot of things that are not true. A lot of these things that we're consuming are not healthy for us. No, they're not. But we've, but we've been conditioned by society to believe that they are, just like we've been conditioned to think that it's okay to smoke cigarettes or, or drink alcohol, but it's not okay to, to smoke weed. That's a societal th- conditioning that's if, happening. If you care about society, why is it in multiple multiples more expensive to eat healthy and organic than it is to eat unhealthy. To eat stuff that's not even real food. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's move on from that because I know we can talk about that yeah. forever. I want to give a couple shout-outs real quick before we get to some sports stuff. Uh, Damian Lillard got engaged. You know, shout-out to him. We're not going to be talking that type of stuff generally, but, you know, he's a dude that we both like, and so we're happy yeah, for him. Yeah, he's, he's definitely got that Mamba mentality, right, that mm-hmm. we talk about a lot. 100%. And also shout-out to our boy Van Lathan. We've had him on the show a couple times, formerly at TMZ. Just did a big deal with The Ringer um, and Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons actually just announced that on his Twitter this week. And we talked about it before that Ringer actually just did a big deal with Spotify for podcasts. That's a huge deal, man. I'm, I'm really happy for Van. Very, very happy for Van. Um, he's he's transitioning to, to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's riding that national championship wave, it seems like. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So speaking of sports, let's talk some sports. The national championship wave you mentioned. Um, let's talk about Buckeyes real quick. We got to give a shout out to them. Buckeyes basketball. They are back in the top 25 after what's been a roller coaster, tumultuous. I don't even know the right word to use for what this season has been. But, you know, I think I would take it, you know, that they're at least starting to try to come back a little bit. Um, instead of failing all the way at the end, they failed in the middle. It's kind of been a weird season for them. I mean, basketball is a, a, a roller coaster ride. And yeah. I think we're learning again. You know, I hope fans basketball fans at ohio state don't make the same mistake that they made with that motto with chris holtman mm-hmm. um that you know you want to have someone who can manage these waves mm-hmm. um especially at a, at a football school and what chris holtman has shown is that he can he can ride with his players during the good times mm-hmm. he can ride with them during the bad times and overall ohio state basketball is back in a place um, that we're overachieving. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, we have, a, we have a young team, and we have, you know, he's a new coach. Uh, one of our best players left because he was having some uh, mental health issues. Um, and then also, and you mentioned this on the previous show, the Big Ten is the strongest conference by mm-hmm. far. Ohio State's only lost one game out of conference. And you're talking about beating teams like Villanova, and I mean, North Carolina's down, but still, they're North Carolina, Cincinnati. I mean, they beat a lot of good teams yeah. out of conference, and um, all but one of their losses came in conference. So we'll see how it plays out. I think. As a Buckeyes fan, are you excited? I don't know if you're excited, but I think that you should at least be grateful, and this is probably to your point, that we're making the tournament. Because there were year, many years growing up where we, were making the, we weren't making the tournament. That wasn't part of our consciousness. It was the NIT. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now we're like making the tournament. We're not happy. And I get that we can get better, and we, and, we will, and we want that, and we should fight for that. But like you said, I think there should be a little bit of appreciation um, for this team as well. And a quick shout out to the Dayton Flyers for being the top five. Can you believe Are they that? top five yes. now? Yeah, man. Look, Ohio, ba- Ohio basketball, Ohio sports, people, you know, when I was in New York, I used to get arguments with people all the time. They think, they don't realize how much Ohio sports, how, how powerful they are in every sport too. Basketball, football, baseball, hockey. If you go and look at the professional leagues and college, college ranks, you'll see players from Ohio all over the place. So, um, LeBron so, James helped change that narrative for us pretty yeah, pretty well, right? He did, he did, <laughs> he did, and actually opened up people's eyes to what's going on here. Yeah. And also Ohio State football, yeah. to be honest. Um, speaking of Ohio football, Browns, Greg Robinson, uh, offensive lineman, uh, was arrested at the border 
of Mexico and the United States with a quote bunch of marijuana, which is interesting. It ties into kind of what we were saying before. You know, I don't know what the charge is going to be. If it, it, when it, I don't know what a bunch means. It sounds <laughs> like it's it's enough where they're probably going to charge them with tra- some type of transport or you know um, possession with like the intent to distribute or whatever. Um, but that's just a, just annoying to, annoying to hear as a Browns fan. Just. Just annoying. Just always something, right? <laughs> yeah. Last year, last week it was something new about Baker Mayfield. This yeah. week it's about and then Kareem Hunt had something. Yeah, it's then... just it's we're always in the 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 news for all the wrong reasons, and it's just it's unfortunate. And maybe we maybe they need to hire Christina to come <laughs> come help them out a little bit. <laughs> right, right. All right. Speaking of um, Browns, Mason Rudolph is actually threatening to sue Miles Garrett. Um, because again, Miles Garrett, you know, he's been re- recently reinstated by the NFL, and in, in his interview, he reiterated, and I'm not sure of the context in, with, in which he reiterated it, but he reiterated that Mason Rudolph used the N word against him when they were in the tussle, and that that was what kind of sparked some of his rage. There's been a number of different kind of responses to that. You know, there, you know, Mike Tomlin, the head coach of the Steelers, came out and emphatically said that he he, he finds it offensive. He doesn't believe that it happened. Um, there are other people from the Steelers that said John Dorsey that, said that Miles Garrett kept that as part of the story the whole way through too. Yeah, so John Dorsey said that, and then also people are saying, "Well, why didn't everybody else hear it if he said that?" And, and he's like, "Well, he said it when we were tangled up." And the reality is, if they're tangled up and he said it, people may not have heard it. So to me, this isn't really a question about who do you believe, um, because it's you know it's we just you don't know, right? You don't you don't know if it happened. There's so many because there's so many. It, it either happened or it didn't. Or, first of all, it either happened or it didn't. But there's also a, a gray area, which is maybe he thought it happened or thought he heard something that he didn't necessarily hear. Or, you know, there's a lot of gray here. So I, for people to say, oh, I know what happened, you, you can't you can't really say that at this point. Uh, and I think there's, to, to be honest, there is a, a racial under, underpinning here on for people's sure. opinions, right? Yeah. On what, what they want to believe is true. Um, and this is all I can say when I try to evaluate people that I don't know well, mm-hmm. but that are public figures, I try to use context. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I feel like has been missed in this whole Miles Garrett situation is who he has represented himself to be up until that incident. Mm-hmm. I think less than three weeks before that incident, some guy came and punched him mm-hmm. while he was driving. Mm-hmm. He did not get out of the car. He didn't punch the guy mm-hmm. back. What we have to understand is something triggered the guy because mm-hmm. he doesn't have that reputation on the field. Yep. What that is may be some, We have years of data. We right? have years and years of data. Mm-hmm. He is not known to be a violent um, guy that's- Beyond football. Beyond football. Mm-hmm. So he obviously was offended by something. He has taken responsibility for what he did. Yep. And what I think the, the NFL is doing a poor job here of is Mason Rudolph- is not an innocent bystander mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. He kicked the guy in the nuts mm-hmm. and everybody else paid consequences for a situation he triggered. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even suspended one game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's an unfair execution of this event based on the objective data that we have. Mm-hmm. And if you don't see it that way, I do think that you're somehow bias is involved. There. Yeah. And the thing is for me, I, you know, there are people emphatically coming out saying that he's lying. Um, the people emphatically coming out saying that he's not, I, I, like I said, I don't think either one of those positions is necessarily justified. I think if you're leaning one way or another, I think that's justified based on what you said, like uh, uh, analyzing all the data that we do have. 
the NFL probably does have a tape. There's supposedly they say they don't have. They have audio tape. of everything. They say <laughs> I know, right? But they're saying they don't. They don't keep tapes post snap. So okay. once the snap comes and they they stop taping, which uh, I don't know if that's true or not. So we'll see how this thing plays out. But um, it's actually kind of a sad. I think the NFL is just a reminder of how divided we are. We're not looking at things objectively yeah, anymore. Yeah, it, it is. And you know, I think there's some people that say. You know, and just this last point I'll make on this, and you kind of touched on this already. There's some people who say, yep, this is typical. These are the type of things that happen to us all the time. And, you know, when we react and we're looked at as a crazy person. And then there are people from the other side that are saying, ah, ah, typical person, you know, you rage and you you make a mistake. And then you want to try to blame it on racism, blame it on something that didn't happen to make up some story, blah, 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 blah. And I think, like you said, a lot of people where they stand on this kind of just is in line with what they just traditionally believe happens in society yes. generally so um we'll see how that that ends up playing out um let's talk about the nba and let's talk about the all-star game and the dunk contest i mean look man you, you and i talked about the all-star game before on the show and we were kind of laughing right because yeah. we were like what is giannis doing they have no chance but man you know whether you think it's rigged or not whatever but that game was like intense it was one of the ones for the ages like those last few minutes i was like on the edge of my seat like it, it was like it really mattered i think i think we talked about this like all-star saturday night the dunk contest and three-point contest is re- literally what i'd tune into and i would tune into the fourth quarter because i think it had lost its value mm-hmm. it was clear the guys weren't taking the game seriously mm-hmm. it's hard it's a break for them right yep. but the nba as as they continue to do mm-hmm. Um, showcase why they're such a great organization yep. um, and have great leadership. They changed the rules. Yep. Um, they I- incorporated a charity component because they knew that just giving these guys more money while these guys are making yeah. <laughs> tens and tens of millions of dollars isn't, isn't yeah. going to do it. But right. creating the charity component. Yeah. And then also I think Giannis is showing through his picks. I laughed about it because he didn't pick the elite, elite guys, but like himself, he picked a bunch of guys who he felt had a chip on their shoulder yeah. and want and would take this game seriously. Yeah. So I laughed at him, but look, his strategy seemed to be smart. Right. No, and it, it was it was amazing. And and let's talk about the dunk contest for a second too. What did you think about that? A lot of people think that uh, our boy, oh my god, why, Aaron Gordon, Aaron Gordon got robbed. Uh, Jones Jr. to me was amazing. I mean, he had like almost a fifty on every dunk that he did. To me, I would have felt sad for him if he didn't win. Especially once they went into the kind of the overtime thing, and you know that guys don't really have <laughs> reserve dunks, and they start doing each other's dunks and stuff like that. It was it was crazy. But what did you think about the outcome? You know when there's a great game and it comes down to the end, and you say I don't want anyone to lose. Yeah, yeah. But you know, like I go back to Jordan, right? You knew that he was just a little bit better. Right, right. Aaron Gordon had five straight fifties. Didn't Jones Jr. have like no? He his first dunk was oh his first dunk was like a forty five. Yeah, and then also to have. Dwayne Wade, who's Mr. Miami Heat, essentially give him a nine at the end. Like yeah. and then also like the evaluation of that dunk. Like yeah. he dunked over somebody who's seven foot five. Yeah. Yeah. So Someone who made Shaq look and, small. And on top of that, they had to do this like they had to just come up with this was off script. Yeah. These guys were going off script. Yeah. So and and, and like everything else, in this situation scenario, it's like don't take it away from Aaron Gordon. Give them both the trophy. Yeah, like, I, I think, think, that they I were think Reggie to, Miller said, "Like, how much is the I next?" I think they were trophy? trying to, and I think they were trying to set up a scenario to give them both at the trophy. But then they started to realize, like, they okay, had that's it not was gonna just going to go all night. <laughs> yeah, it, it, these guys are amazing. But yeah, I think um, 
I feel bad for Aaron Gordon. And, I, and actually, I feel bad, even worse probably for basketball fans because he said he's not doing it again. You know, this is the second time that a lot of people believe that he got robbed. So, you know, when, when that happens to you two times. And I think you know, that that's, that's part of what should have gone into the evaluation of the judges knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I posted a picture like, let's make sure the judges have all won dunk contests before <laughs> so they can evaluate right. Right. evaluate this thing properly and not don't have um, conflict of interest. Right. And uh, speaking of cheating scandals, the Astros, man, what the heck is going on with the Astros and Major League Baseball and the commissioner coming out? Like, what is what what is going on there? As as you know, I've spent a lot of time in Houston. I'm yes. there. I still go back and forth quite a bit. What's really, really sad about this is when you know the full story of the Astros, Yeah, they were like the bottom feeder organization. Mm-hmm. Empty seats, worse. Nobody would even, you couldn't pay people to go watch them play. Yeah. To see the story and see the characters in that story, Altuve and what they did to the community there. Even Yeah, from 2017. Also. Yeah. yeah. The, the community and now what the culture of baseball is and to have a winner in the city oh, of Houston. I see what Houston, you're saying, yeah. To have a winner in the city of Houston. What... The, the collateral damage, you know, what sports franchises do, they represent a community. Mm-hmm. Now to go from that euphoria of we had this underdog team that overcame yeah. all odds, beat the Yankees, beat all these teams, right. to now dealing with they were cheating the whole time. Yeah. Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. How do you absorb that yeah. as a fan? Right. First of all, the consequences, the GMs have been fired. That's been done. Yeah. And then how do you reconcile? What do you do? Do you take the championship away? Mm-hmm. Um, and as I read into this and, and talked to people who were in the baseball world, they said, look, there are some people who are saying, look, they got caught. Mm-hmm. But cheating is a part of the culture of baseball. Mm-hmm. It's all about what you get caught. We had the steroid. Right. It's all about not getting caught. Yeah. And I think some teams and some people are coming out like they did in the steroid era claiming to be holier than thou mm-hmm, right. who have skeletons in their own yeah, closet and are doing things to get an edge. Right. And it shows how competitive it is. Yeah. Like these guys want to win. They're the highest competitors, but to know what was actually happening. But there's some sports that don't have that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, you hear the thing, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Right. Um, <laughs> but, in, and, and in football, you see it, right? You hear the Belichick stories. You hear people stealing playbooks and, you know, going to other teams' locker rooms and, you know, trying to steal signals and all that type of stuff. Basketball, you just – I don't really know if you can cheat, really. It's just like, you know, what are you going to yeah. do? Put, like, super glue on the guy's shoes. You know, like, yeah. you, it's harder. But in baseball, you're right. There is – there seems to be kind of a culture of let's just do what we can to get away with it. And part of it, I think, has comes from the, just the grind that baseball is. It's crazy, yeah. 100 and 162 games. It's like almost nine months of the year. Then you got spring training. I mean, you have like a month off. You know, the guys' bodies aren't recovering that fast. You know, it's just, it's hard to stay in the big show. It's hard to stay. It's like the hardest and, sport. You know what I mean? So it's people, very hard. Think about how, like, batting 30% is, You're an all-star. You're an all-star. Yeah. So anything you can do to get in, these pitchers are, I'm not excusing it, by no. the way, but I'm just kind of you understanding know, yeah. why it exists. But, it, but as a competitor, and you know, and this is you know one of the things that LeBron said um, was like, if you find that out, right, you gave your heart and soul, and you did it, you know, the quote unquote right way, right, mm-hmm. and you didn't cheat, and then you and you feel like you lost fair and square, and you like, all right, you just finally came to terms with it, like, man, we lost, and then you find this out a couple years later, like that doesn't, 
and there's no recourse and the and the commissioner's not saying anything and it's just like no that that would that would drive me bonkers and, and you realize the impact that this has right the steroid culture you have Hank Aaron continuing to to say like look these guys Barry Bonds Mark McGuire Sammy Sosa do they do they or don't they deserve to be in it you know in the in the Hall of Fame right. and, and it's just baseball has some major issues yeah. and and it has to say look this is a culture that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. It's deep rooted. Yeah, because it it goes back to pitchers spitting and bringing stuff in their mitts. Like right, right. this is the culture of baseball. Yeah, is cheating hmm. and, and getting an edge. And maybe it's because, like you said, the sport is this difficult. But yeah, it's the whole story is unfortunate for on so many levels. Yeah, specifically for fans of the Houston Astros to have to deal with this. Right. Um, all right. Let's move on real quick. Let's talk about the Wilder and Fury fight. Um, this I think it's this Saturday night, yeah, and then we talked to Buster Douglas on our podcast um, last week or two, a couple weeks ago, and he was saying that f- actually Wilder was one of his top five favorite boxers, which yeah. I thought was amazing. This fight has a lot of hype, and it has the makings of seeming like boxing is back. Maybe heavyweight boxing is back. What do you think about that? This is definitely the fight that can make it happen. Mm-hmm. Like I get excited about it. You know, we talk a lot about the sport of boxing and. Part of the reason I love boxing, obviously, there are issues that I have with like the violent nature of it, yeah. like we do with football. But the stories of boxers, mm-hmm. and specifically in this this situation, it is a rocky story on both ends. Mm-hmm. If you look at what Deontay Wilder did to become a boxer, mm-hmm. you know his daughter having spinal bifida and this being his outlet, and how hard he worked mm-hmm. to get to where he's at, and the same thing with Tyson. Fury, who's yeah. actually named after Mike Tyson, right. kind of going through his issues with substance problems and depression and coming out on the other side of that. Right. It's like you don't want to root against either one of these guys, mm-hmm. um, but it's a great fight because it brings the value back to the heavyweight division. You yeah. have Wilder, who is the Mike Tyson knockout artist, mm-hmm. and Tyson Fury, who's the tactician. Right. Technically, I thought he won the first fight. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, when Wilder hit him, it changed the course of the fight. But it's just an exciting fight to know. Yeah. That As a boxing fan, people who've been yearning for this kind yeah. of just feeling again. Because boxing, it's not just about the fights. It's actually about the feeling, right? Leading up and to the, the story. fight. The week of the fight. The yeah. story, like, you know, like, oh, my God, the anticipation. That's how it was, What you know, for Tyson fights and, and Holyfield. And obviously for Muhammad Ali and everyone before us, that's what it was. It was that anticipation mm-hmm. that... We didn't. We've been missing. Even if a fight ended up being good, that anticipation wasn't there. But yeah. it seems like back f- for this one. Um, last thing. Let's transition. Last thing on news and notes, and we actually have a very huge guest that's going to be talking with us next week about these issues. Stay tuned. Uh, the NCAA, Division One uh, student athletes in all sports, could have the opportunity to compete immediately after transferring one time. Um, if a proposed change to waiver guidelines is adopted by the Division One Council this spring. So basically, you know, now if you want to transfer, you can transfer, but to have immediate eligibility, you have to get a waiver. Um, you have to get permission from the school, and then you have to get a waiver from the NCAA, and essentially you have to, the waiver has to be some type of hardship that you experienced. Um, but now they're proposing that they're going to do a one-time transfer, that your first transfer that you do, you don't have to have a waiver, that it's just, automatically there's few things that you have to you know you have to be in good standing academic standing you have to get permission from the school so on and so forth but you don't have to go through the waiver process what do you make of it you don't have to sit out a year right and you know that you so for the first time you don't have to you can and you can 
have immediate eligibility. I mean, these small steps, another small step. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to like clap my hands and stand on the table for the NCAA, but yeah. it is nice to see that they're making some small changes, especially with what we're seeing in the landscape of coaching, how mm-hmm. these coaches can just leave one school and go to another at will. Yeah, in the middle of a season. In the middle of a season. Yeah. And even now at Michigan State, right. you know, after everything is done, yeah. recruiting season is pretty much over. Yep. You can't allow coaches to do that and everyone else to do whatever the hell they want to do yeah. and and not allow players to do the same. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, these kids are playing on scholarship. Mm-hmm. They're not being paid. Mm-hmm. If they go to a school, sometimes we all make – bad decisions in terms of taking a job we don't want or going somewhere with our circumstances circumstances like you know in some of these situations you know there are financial issues that come with living four states away from your family Mm -hmm. and the expenses that that hundred percent brings and a lot of these issues aren't highlighted yeah um properly and i don't think there should be restrictions on on what players can do so long as they're not doing anything well that's why i think the one time they're basically trying to do it one time um, that gives you immediate eligibility. And theoretically, that should cover 90-something percent of the cases, right? Because you shouldn't there – there are some, like, system kind of uh, administrative things that will definitely get disrupted if people are transferring four, five, six times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like that. And I, and, I, and I agree with you. We're not going to jump on the table and clap for the NCAA, but it does seem like they are at least listening um, to some of the things that are being said behind the scenes. And they're, they're kind of being forced they're to being a little They're being forced bit. to. They're and, but they're making the small changes, you know, slowly but surely making small changes in a way, maybe because they feel like they need to make things better, but also to shut people up a little bit. Uh, but, but like you said, like we were talking about before, so long as the it doesn't matter necessarily the reason why they're doing it, so long as the effect takes us to more of a kind of a just result, then I think, then well, I think we're good. What we don't want to do is undermine competition, mm-hmm. you know. The story we have, of course, at Ohio State is Tate Martel. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with his reasoning. Or transferring, transfer, but don't transfer because you're scared to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, if if what happened with Joe Burrow happened, you compete, right? You lose out, then you should go and, and create an opportunity for yourself somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But if you're somewhere and you're just unwilling to compete and do what's necessary, yeah, you're not going to do any better. Well, eventually else. that person is going to be weeded out, and that's yes. just the reality of life, anyway, right? So they can transfer a hundred times if they want to. It's it's not going to affect their bottom exactly. line. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, But I do think this is a good step in the right direction. So again, next week we're going to have a huge guest on the show and we'll talk to him about some of these issues as well. It'll be good to get that perspective, that side of the fence's perspective. Exactly. Stay tuned. Thanks. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Love the Pilot Boys Podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. And we have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash pilot boys podcast. Show us some love today. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guest, Janae Bolden. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Mechanon Music, and V is at Viswant. Always remember, be you, you is fly. Pilot Boys out! Pilot Boys, we get on up!